This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. This is News Talk 980 CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're talking about bankruptcy versus credit counseling. Two concepts that we we think we know lots about. It's, It's not uncommon for folks who fall for personal bankruptcy to have first attempted to resolve their financial situation using that traditional credit counseling. And to be honest, credit counseling doesn't sound like a bad thing, Blair. Right, yeah, very innocuous term. Yep. Yeah, and mm-hmm. is it a good start or, or isn't it? Well, it, it depends on, on the situation. I think that's what we should talk about today is, you know, what's, what's the big differences between if you see a credit counselor, what can that person do for you? What are the qualifications? What authorities do they act under? Um, versus if you see a licensed insolvency trustee, uh, what can that person do through a bankruptcy proceeding to help you with the debts? Uh, because there's a huge amount of confusion um, in consumers' minds. And, you know, some of the biggest credit counseling firms, um, you know, they brand themselves as not-for-profit as well. So you can imagine if you see a not-for-profit, a credit counselor, or a charity service, you know, a lot of your more skeptical antenna might might go down a little bit. You might sure. think that, you know, those are encouraging facts. Um, but there's sometimes more to the story. You need to look a little bit deeper to understand what's actually being proposed um, and who's behind the organizations as well. Okay, that's a good point. So what are the things that we need to be aware of in terms of who's behind these organizations? Well, so one thing that I, I would... I would really uh, encourage people to do is to look at the financial disclosures of credit counselors. So uh, within BC, there's a number of very large credit counseling firms, and because they are not-for-profit organizations, um, you can view their financials on Canada Revenue Agency. And what you quickly find out is what credit counselors are funded by is creditors. So the people that are paying the bills are the people that you essentially owe money to. So if you're sitting down with a credit counselor, make sure that you're aware of that fact that you are speaking essentially indirectly with the creditor, with an agent of that creditor. So again, consumer or credit counseling um, agencies in BC, one in particular I know of, they're actually registered as a collection agent in other provinces. Okay. Because other provinces have taken the view that if you provide a debt collect and act collecting activity, you must register as such and actually disclose that. So you could see not-for-profit charity, how that can sound next to collection agent, but it's actually the same same substance of what's being done at the end of the day. That right? seems beyond sneaky to me. Yeah, I, I don't have much good to say about it um, yeah. being fair here. But, you know, essentially, if people are aware of all of these situations, well, then that's fine. Make make your situ- make your decision with full awareness. Um, but don't assume that not-for-profit or charity means that this is someone out for your best interest with your best interest only at heart. Um, quite often, it's who's paying the bill is whose best interest are at heart. Okay, so that really separates uh, fo- uh, credit counseling uh, versus uh, Sands & Associates, for example, because you 
you guys are certified, licensed yep. by the federal and provincial governments, right? Exactly. So I've got a, a license from the federal government that makes me an officer of the court, which gives me the authority to deal with people's personal debt situation. Um, and let's you know dive a little bit into the the difference about what a you know a bankruptcy can do versus what a credit counseling plan yes. can do, because you know very clearly, and no credit counselor would say this, they can't do a bankruptcy. You know, only a trustee can do so. But what they do offer is what's called a debt management plan, which is often positioned as, you know, the be-all and the end-all and a reason why you should never consider a bankruptcy because this debt management plan is, is going to be a better option for you. In many situations, it's not better. Because it sounds better, right? Like, because ultimately, if I'm coming for help about a debt, mm-hmm. um, my intention is to repay the debt. Yeah. But the difference is between credit counseling and Sands and Associates, a licensed uh, insolvency trustee, is that I end up paying different amounts. Yeah, so let's go to you know a number number of factors, right? So first off, if you sign on with a credit counseling plan, um, you know a debt management plan, which sounds great, we all want to manage our debt. Essentially, what you're signing on to do is to make a hundred percent repayment of the amount of debts that you owe, and perhaps you'll get an interest freeze depending on the creditor. So sounds great, right? If you think that's all that's out there, is you know Visa or Mastercard is charging you twenty percent interest, they're going to cut that to zero and give you some time to pay off the debt. Um, but it's important to keep in mind that any government debt, they'll never freeze the interest based on a credit counseling plan. And not all creditors will agree to even reduce all of the interest. You may still have to pay it. Um, But a bigger factor here too is, you know, most of the time, the amount of debt that you've got, certainly the folks that walk through the door, it's not in the cards that this is going to get paid off 100% even with no interest. The impact that would take on someone's budget is massive. Um, and, you know, we're probably talking five years of payments to pay off 100% of the principal. That contrasts with a bankruptcy where if someone is low income, they pay $200 a month, they pay it for nine months, and they move on with their life. So it's a much quicker and much less expensive um, ability to restructure your debts. Uh, the administration costs, there's a couple of things that are listed here. How does that, what role does that play in this? Well, in terms of administration costs, if you file a bankruptcy, everything is governed by tariff. So there's no hidden fees. There's no extra costs mm-hmm. that you're not apprised of. The government says if you're low income, you're going to make a payment. You know, usually it's about $200 a month for nine months, and that's inclusive of everything. On a credit counseling plan, depending on which credit counselor you're working with, the fees could be hugely different. You know, you could have very little fees, you know, $10, $20, $50 a month, or you could have some pretty massive fees, you know, based on a percentage of, you know, the interest that's been saved or different things like that. The takeaway here is that there's no regulation. There's nothing that requires, um, you know, clear disclosures of fees from all from all sides uh, if you're doing a credit counseling or even a debt settlement plan, whereas in a bankruptcy, everything is set by government tariff. It's a federal tariff. It's the same across the country. And it's transparent and it's set out from the very beginning yeah. and it doesn't change change, right? You've got a period of time and those are the, those are the numbers. That's what you've agreed to pay and off you go. Yeah. And the amounts that you have to pay in a bankruptcy, it's all driven by your household family size and the obligations of that family. So, you know, if you're, um, you know, working and a spouse is at home and you've got a few kids and they need some medical therapies and prescription drugs, all that is taken into account and your bankruptcy payment is, you know, after those things have been considered. Uh, If you're doing a credit counseling plan, again, there's no ability to reduce the amount of the debt. You've got to pay back 100% of the debt and whatever that monthly payment is, you've got to figure out a way to make that fit. 
Plus live. Plus live. Look right. after your family and the house and the car and all of those things. Yeah. So I, I meet with people, you know, usually every week or so who've been on a credit counseling plan. And when I look at the monthly payment that they've made and the percentage of their income that it is, and then when we consider, you know, bankruptcy would be over much quicker. You'd pay a lot less back. Your family would be better off and you're still going to rebuild yourself just fine. You know, a lot of people make that switch saying, you know, I've been trying this plan. It's just not going to work for me. Let's bite the bullet. Let's get this bankruptcy over with. Okay, perfect. So credit rating impact. Yeah, so most people are, are really concerned, obviously, about their credit rating. If they file for bankruptcy, it takes a hit, but they don't quite realize that if you do a credit counseling plan, even reducing the interest is a hit to your credit. So not as severe as what a bankruptcy would be, um, but it's still a hit to your credit. So unless you're going to pay everything back in full with all the interest charges, no matter what, your credit's going to, ta- going to take a ding. Now, what's important to realize is that you can start rebuilding your credit as soon as you're finished with a bankruptcy. Okay, so generally a bankruptcy will be over for most people in nine months or in 21 months for, you know, maybe 20% of people. Um, so, you know, inside of two years, the bankruptcy is over and you're going to start rebuilding. If you're on a credit counseling plan, normally you're making payments for five years and then you start rebuilding. So there are schools of thought that would say, you know, getting it over quickly and then rebuilding your credit, you know, while you'd still be paying in the in a credit counseling plan is actually going to be a better outcome for you in the long term. Yeah. Let's talk about the length of time again, just to reiterate that mm-hmm. nine months or 21 months versus up to five years. I mean, that's significant. Oh, indeed. Yeah. And the nine versus 21 months, that's right in the law. And the government says, yeah, if you're low income, it's nine months. If you're not, it's a year different. But yeah, contrast that to 60 payments compared yeah. to nine or 21. 21 payments. And yeah, it's just the length of time this is on your mind. It's consuming your energy and consuming your budget. Perfect. Creditor agreement and or collection. How does the difference again, some big differences? Yeah, it's night and day, Elaine. So what I love about being a trustee, and uh, not that I'm a power-hungry individual, but a trustee's got incredible amounts of power to make silly conduct stop. Right. So if someone's calling you, harassing you, threatening to take you to court, the day you file for bankruptcy, the trustee has got federal authority to basically put people on notice and say, all of this is illegal now. And if you continue, it's harassment and we'll get people involved. And we never have to get to that level because everybody knows that a trustee has the authority to give you protection. Right. Okay. A credit counselor has none of that authority. Zero. So if someone is calling you or harassing you, hopefully they're going to agree to the credit counselor's plan to, you know, to let you pay all the debt back over five years. And why wouldn't they? But not in every case. So quite often, and sometimes it's a personal creditor, or again, it's the government, the government will never agree to this stuff. They're free to opt out of that plan that you still might be paying on for years. They can still sue you. They can harass you. They can take you to court. Um, they can start to seize your wages, a bunch of really negative impacts. You might be doing everything right on this great plan, but because that plan has no legal sanction, no federal authority behind it, you're still at risk. Yeah, you don't have any control over a whole bunch of people, whereas with the other way, with the bankruptcy, there's a lot of control there, and mm-hmm. and it's being managed by somebody else, not yourself, which I particularly like. Yeah, the, the whole point, and I, I say this to my clients, you know, after you've signed the bankruptcy documents, if you're feeling stressed, we're doing something wrong here, okay? Yeah. Because the stress should be going away once you've signed into bankruptcy, because we're dealing with everything. There's nothing that should surprise you. There's no creditor that's going to suddenly show up at your door and start seizing things. And if you go through a bankruptcy, it's very, very laid out in detail what you have to do to come out the other side. So having the certainty, having a plan, there's huge mental value in that to, rather than having uncertainty of who the heck might drop out of this plan and then start to take action against me if you were with a credit counselor. 
and the reason why uh, there's such a difference between the two processes is the qualifications of the people that you're dealing with. Yeah, that, that's a, one way to, to a good way to say it, Elaine, is to be a trustee. Um, there's only a thousand trustees in Canada, and you've got to study quite a long time. You know, it takes about three to five years after a university degree to get a trustee's license. Um, there's nothing to stop you or I or anybody else to go out and start a credit counseling firm tomorrow and use that title. And there's no regulatory body. There's no dispute resolution body. It's a term that means something, but there's no prohibition against anybody using it. So you'll find very different levels of qualifications. If you meet with a trustee, federally licensed individual who takes it very seriously what they can do for you. You're listening to Blair Manton with Sands & Associates. I'm Elaine Scollin. The show is called Dollars and Cents. Sands & Associates, experts in helping you get out of debt. For more information on any of the services we've talked about, go to the website, sands-trustee.com for more information. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. Get a financial fresh start by calling 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation with Sands & Associates and to find an office near you. We're talking with Richard Moxley, who uh, had been a mortgage broker for many years and is now really dedicated to helping you understand the rules of credit, how to start, rebuild, and always maintain great credit. That's uh, one of the subtitles of his book that did very, very well. I did a little bit of research, Richard. You got 4.7 out of 5 on Goodreads rating, which I thought was pretty, pretty decent and, and worth mentioning. Well, thank you. Yeah. In this segment, we're going to talk about uh, how to understand how credit scores can change and what you can do about it. It sounds like sort of a a big wieldy topic, Richard, and a bit scary, possibly. Uh, How how do they change? Uh, What are the factors that are involved in in your credit score changing, Uh, the good and the bad? Well, on on the good, uh, well, just change in general. The the score is updated every thirty to ninety days, and and a lot can happen in that time. And, and the score is dependent on the information that your individual loans, credit cards, or, or different lenders are submitting to Equifax and TransUnion. And anything that happens within that thirty to ninety day period will jump or decline the score. Okay. So uh, is there ways that you can uh, boost your credit score? Yeah, so one of the fastest ways to jump the, the credit score is getting errors or old information off the credit report. So a lot of people don't know that the, the information on your credit report should only be there six to seven years, depending on which province you live in. And once it's past that time, it should be removed or can be removed off the credit report by, by legislation. So that, that can make a lot of people feel much better because uh, they messed up or they were young and dumb with their credit. But now it's been six or seven years and now that information should be off. So they kind of get a clean slate again. 
And so, Richard, it, it sounds like the information should be off, but it's not an automatic every case thing. Um, I definitely, you know, from my work as a trustee, I have people call me and, you know, check on, on their bureau. And I'm like, yeah, well, this bankruptcy should be off, you know, a year or two ago, but sometimes there's still an extra step where the person needs to follow up, which, you know, is quite concerning for me. Um, is it rather widespread that you really need to keep up on when things should be dropping off of, of your report versus not? Yes, it's huge. Uh, the I was just talking to someone uh, yesterday, who his bankruptcy is still showing on, and it's been eight years. Mm-hmm. So after six years, it should be off, but it was misreported. And, uh, well, some of the things have been misreported from the individual letter- lenders that were included into the bankruptcy. And then even actually the public record has the correct date, uh, or sorry, the bankruptcy is showing the correct date, but it's still not off. So just remember that Equifax and TransUnion, it's a computer system. And and how many times are there computer glitches with even just your personal computer? Just imagine how many errors and issues there would be when you have millions of people's data coming in every 30 to 90 days. Right. So, so the idea of, you know, purging things off after a certain amount of time, you need to be actively engaged in that. And generally six, seven years, that's kind of the, the high end of what most things would, would be on, you know, failing at being a judgment or something like that, right? Exactly. Yeah. That yeah. six, seven years is, is the, the typical time. Right. So that, that's something that could negatively impact your credit. Are there, are there other things that can have a, a negative impact? Yeah. One of the, the most important things to remember is that This credit score, both Equifax and TransUnion, is heavily weighted on scoring current credit as the most important indicator on how you deal with credit. So someone who's gone through a bankruptcy or or any kind of debt program, that that can be, you know, bad information that's, that's lowering the score. But that doesn't affect the score as much when it's been three years down the road. So what they're looking for is, okay, so that's, in the past, but what what are you doing now? What, what have you been doing in the last couple of years? That is more uh, controlling on the credit score and and is most helpful on the credit. Um, so a missed payment uh, in the last year will really lower the score. But if you had a missed payment, let's say four years ago, then it's hardly even affecting the credit score anymore. Yeah, and Richard, I think that's such an important point. I just want to emphasize it, it a bit. Is you know, when I meet with people, there's no one that doesn't ask me about, well, what about my credit report? What about my credit score in the future? And you know, people assume that if bankruptcy is on there for six years after, you're a pariah, you're untouchable. No one will ever loan you any money for six years until it's gone. Um, to your point, it sounds like once the bankruptcy is finished, it's what you do after that really matters. Um, you know, I counsel people, if you do the right things in two or three years, you can take a credit score from, you know, very bad coming out of a bankruptcy to something reasonable. Um, is that a fair, you know, time frame, Richard, to, to turn a credit report around? Yeah, it's the two years that matter most. So the guidelines from CMHC, Jamworth, County Guarantee, or, or pretty much all the major banks and lenders when it comes to mortgage financing and most types of financing would all be that two years. So even if it's on there for longer, six, seven years, whatever it is, it's what's happened in the last two years that matters most. So if you're looking to jump your score, getting new current good credit will outweigh the bad and the past information. 
Yeah, and and just you know drilling that down just one level further, Richard, because I know you you, you coach on this specifically. Um, you know, what should somebody start with if they've got you know a, a bad credit report now and they want to start turning it around? Is there a certain number of cards, limits, coaching, things like that that could boost their score? Yeah, so getting uh, at least two credit cards is is the ideal. There are other types of credit, but the credit cards are are the most. Uh, affect the credit score the most and is what banks and lenders want to see. Uh, having a loan on there can help the credit score, but the, the what the banks and lenders really like to see is credit cards because that's the hardest to control for most Canadians, and so they want to see that you can control it. Right. I'm curious, too, because, Richard, this is sort of an area that I, I know very, very little about. Are banks and lenders the only ones that are really interested in my credit score at any given time? That's actually a great question because I have a client that has come to me, and, and I mean, it's common that uh, uh, they're calling me to help them with their credit because their job is at stake, uh, because there's an error from uh, a major bank saying that they owe money or and it's not even theirs. And if we don't get it corrected or if he doesn't get it off the report, then he's going to lose his job. So oh. employment is a lot of uh, employers, especially with larger companies who go through a lot of applications, use it as a way to vet um, the applicants, and then also a way to see how trustworthy someone is, uh, because if you can't handle your finances, then should you really be handling someone else's or, or be in a job or, or specialization that deals with a lot of income and advice and stuff like that? Or budgets or yeah. forecasting yeah. and all that kind of thing. I can see how that would impact it. Yeah. And there's, there's no rules that protect me as an employee uh, from a bank or a lender coming to my uh, or getting a hold of my uh, uh, place of work to ask those questions or to, um, you know, talk to somebody about me that way? Yeah, I mean, you can always uh, decline having your credit uh, put out there for insurance or for employment or for whatever it's being uh, requested for but most companies won't do it or, or like won't we'll just say well, that's part of the process so right. if you won't allow us to check your credit then we can't give you the job sure so I understand. it's it's kind of like declining for a, a, a what do you call it, criminal check right it, it kind of raises some flags why you wouldn't want a criminal check done. <laughs> yeah, is what's hiding in the in the past. Absolutely. Now, in that list, you included insurance. So, is that something that an insurance company as well would want to take a look at? Yeah. So, not so much here in Canada, but it is coming um, there. But there are a lot of major insurance companies, even now in Canada, that will use your credit as an indicator of how responsible you are, even on your driving. Hmm, interesting. So, so they'll lower your premium if you have a higher credit score. Sure, I get that. Uh, now, we, uh, in wrapping up uh, our segment with you, uh, let's talk about other resources uh, that you are solely responsible in this particular case and want to talk about, which I think is a great idea, especially for folks who are wanting more information uh, to access you. Yeah, so 
One of the biggest challenges I had when switching from mortgages to credit is people would say, well, I pay my bills on time, so I got good credit. Or I got approved five years ago for a mortgage, so they just assume that they have good credit. There's so many different rules and, and tricks with credit that the majority of Canadians have no clue even are out there. And it affects so much of what you do in life that that's why I left the mortgage side of things to, to really help people understand all the tricks and, and things that they need to know in order to have good credit. And so uh, writing the book was one, but then, uh, you know, a lot of people don't even like reading anymore. <laughs> and so that's when I developed a Credit TV which is a free resource which has almost everything that's in my book and it's all current. And they're fun little videos that uh, I even wrote my family into doing to, to make it less uh, scary for some people. No, it's and, excellent. Yeah, and those are free videos to, to help people understand and then they can ask questions in the comments or, or reach out. Yeah, reach within, out to you. Yeah, just have a source for that's 100% Canadian information that's 100% free and just get their credit questions answered. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com. On the line with us right now is Dr. Leanne Davies. Uh, Leanne is the founder and CEO of Agenomics. She has a PhD in aging, health, and well-being, and is the co-author of a book called When Life Bites You in the Wallet. Uh, Leanne, as we're going to find out, is pretty passionate about sharing her insights on population, professionals, philanthropists, and the general public and what and how we can prepare and respect the changes that are coming as we age. Leanne, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Elaine. Thank you very much for including me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Leanne, it's it's Blair here. Um, I wonder if you can just start by explaining to us, what is the wealth effect? I know it's something you've, you've researched, you've written on quite extensively. So for our listeners, can you give us a sense of the wealth effect, what you mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, hi, Blair. It's great to speak to you again. And I'd love to talk about the wealth effect and certainly how it's viewed with an aging population. So the wealth effect really is an existing theory. It's not something new that's happened just with the increase of our house prices in some areas in Canada. Um, but what's different this time with the wealth effect, uh, where people start to feel that they have uh, a lot more money than they really have in their bank accounts, for example, because of the increase in, in the house prices, What's really different this time is this easy access to credit mm-hmm. and consumers looking at using the income that they're um, able to get through their house because they're going and getting loans against their house um, rather than using the income from their regular working stream uh, and really starting to feel that they have a lot more money available to them. And of course, that results in, in consumption that we wouldn't normally see in the population. So when I, I'm seeing these, you know, big bank ads that say you're richer than you think, um, I always, you know, turn, <laughs> kind of furrow my brow a little bit saying the clients that I see that, you know, they're definitely not richer than they think. And you're saying, Leanne, there, there's actually um, a whole, you know, phenomenon of that of people thinking that there's more wealth than actually exists. 
Yeah, to some degree. So does the wealth exist or not? Well, it exists on paper, right? When we see people's houses increasing so substantially uh, in value, at least what's on paper, and people look at that and say, well, I couldn't make that type of money when I'm working. Of course, I'm becoming much wealthier because I own that particular type of real estate. And then we see the additional effect of that, which is they buy more and more real estate uh, and they're taking on more and more risk because of that easy access to credit. So the wealth effect is creating a behavior in these individuals that we wouldn't normally have seen. Oh, that, that's really interesting, Leanne. And I, I'm wondering, you know, in, in my client base, what I've seen is, you know, people using their, their house kind of as an ATM, you know, an automated bank machine, so to speak. Uh, whereas, you know, as the house goes up in value, and they might have bought it, you know, for a very low price 20 years ago, 20 years later, they actually don't have much equity because they've continually pulled out the, you know, the equity and lines of credit and things like that. Is, is that a phenomenon that's, you know, kind of driven by this wealth effect? Absolutely. And certainly the ATM um, comparison to a house, we see quite a bit with these lines of credit that people are receiving. And what we are also seeing is the behavior where people used to be afraid of debt. So we had what was called the fear of debt. And now we have what's referred to commonly as the fear of missing out. Hmm. So people are making decisions that they're afraid that if they don't buy it now, they're not going to be able to buy it later. So a marketing ploy that people used to do to create this consumer response, you know, go buy uh, the new car, go buy the new phone. We're seeing it now with big, big ticket items like real estate. That's interesting. One of the things that when you mentioned about um, our attitude towards debt, Leanne, I remember hearing a, it was a documentary about uh, how we're how we perceive debt today versus how we did hundreds of years ago. I mean, there used to be a thing called the debtor's prison. Mm-hmm. If you were in debt and you couldn't pay your money that was owed, you were in the slammer. And that's just not the case anymore. Sure. And there is a stigma to debt as well. And we don't have that anymore. Um, taking on debt is seen as a, a rational way to leverage this opportunity where um, right now the, the risk of this, the access to the credit, the low interest rates makes it a very logical response. So for those people who are savers, who aren't taking on debt, who aren't you know, taking advantage of these low rates, they're really seen as not rational. Mm. It's an opportunity. So this whole behavior, this whole idea of the debtor no longer exists. That term we wouldn't really see. We see people going after opportunities and, and right now benefiting hugely from them. You also talk a great deal about gray debt. What's gray debt and how does it relate to the wealth, the effect, the wealth effect? So what we used to worry about was somebody, as they got older, entering into these later years, and especially their retirement years, uh, with some debt on their personal books. So the recommendation always was, if you're moving towards retirement, those last five years are really your launch pad into retirement, and you want to start organizing your finances in a way that you're not carrying any debt, you've got your mortgage paid off, that you're not taking on any pressure, uh, because in retirement, we don't know what will happen. The other types of things that we used to worry about with people as they got older was that there would be a change in health, um, that you may find yourself in a later year divorce, or you may find yourself caregiving for your older parent, and all of these can drain your finances as well. So that type of gray debt worried people as we started to look at how they'd move into retirement. But we've got a new phenomenon that's happening now, and it's, it's what I would refer to as this transgenerational look at debt. 
And it's something where older adults, so people who have children who are moving into their adult years or in their early adult years, um, are looking to help their children sort of jump into uh, a lifestyle that they feel is suitable for their children. And it's back to this fear of missing out. I hear more and more older adults say, I want to help my kid buy a house. In fact, I'm going to buy some real estate now with the intention that I know my kids won't be able to afford this in the future because of the escalation of real estate. So I'm going to have that house ready for them. And if it's a couple of kids, they can divide that up, but it gives them that jump start. We never saw that type of transgenerational look at that before. And yet it's happening now day over with many, many people. It sure is. I'm, I hear that all the time amongst uh, my peers saying, you know, uh, you know, whoever son and daughter is, they can't afford to live in the lower mainland. Mm-hmm. So we've got to figure out a way to get them here or to support them. So now part of me thinks, oh, well, that's very kind and thoughtful. And, and there's parents continuing to, to give and look after their kids. What's the downside of that? Yeah, there's a couple of things that I think people aren't taking into consideration. So when we talk about this next generation coming into their adulthood, so these millennials born 1980 to 2000, it's a large group of young adults. But they're coming in with a whole different set of values than what the boomers, their parents had. They're coming in more flexible in how they handle life. They're looking for a work-life balance. They're looking for experiences. So the first comment I would make is be careful of putting your own boomer values onto the millennial generation. What you think they may want and the debt you may take on to make that happen may not be what they want in the end. The second caution I would have with that is when you start to buy things, this transgenerational purchasing, um, you're risking monetizing a relationship. The relationship within a family needs to be more at an emotional level. You don't want to be putting a dollar figure onto that. And so what that does create is the potential to have an insatiable relationship because dollar-wise, you'll never be able to satisfy someone's needs. They have to learn what their own needs are and how they're going to achieve them. That's a really hard thing, though, I think, for parents to even consider, the boomer parents to even sort of think about the ramifications of it. I mean, that's a... I mean, we've always looked after our kids. This is how we've done it. So we'll just continue to to do it, right? I mean, that would take a real shift in thinking. Yeah, for some parents. And I think one way to do that is to consider, and it's, it's hard to do, but you may be 65 right now and healthy and active and independent. But let's face it, it does not continue that way. There are challenges that every one of us will face as we age. And those types of challenges require require money to support you. And I think most of us want to remain independent as long as we can. And it's money that will help you do that. It'll help you buy different services that as your health changes, you can leverage those services to really keep the, the type of lifestyle that you're able to enjoy independently. So think of yourself and try to picture yourself 20 years out as you're a much older adult. And in the end, that benefits your kids as well because they're able to have their own independent lives, not worrying about the type of quality of life that you're experiencing. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. 
You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. Now, you've helped a lot of people, Blair, deal with their debt issues and situations. Let's uh, let's talk about some really interesting case studies and give folks an opportunity to see if any of this sort of uh, fits with their situations. Yep. Because, uh, you know, we're not all that different, right? We're all in s- similar situations, I think, in y- terms of, you know, our where we are in terms of our life and what we're doing and kids and homes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, like we, we often say, you know, that that's become a fact of life these yeah. days. And, you know, everyone that walks through our, our doors or, you know, almost everyone really feels that they're the first person that's, that's faced this issue this severely. So the amount of times I'm asked, you know, this is probably the worst situation you've ever heard. And I'm like, well, it's not quite, but it's up there. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> exactly. you know, yeah, we, we, we hear a lot of situations, but, you know, the positive thing is a debt problem is not like many other problems where there's, you know, a hundred different solutions. Maybe they work all the time. A debt problem has a finite number, just a few solutions, and they work every single time. So it's very positive, whatever the situation is. The first step is to reach out for help, and after that, it can be very straightforward to get the problem solved. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the, uh, first of all, let's do just a a brief definition, the difference between a bankruptcy and a consumer proposal, and then let's talk about some folks that have come to see you. Sure, so so focusing on a consumer proposal. So a consumer proposal um, is where you're making a deal with the people that you owe money to. So you sit down with the trustee, and the trustee figures out, okay, hypothetically, if you were to file a bankruptcy, here's what would happen, here's what would have to get paid back. And usually it's a very low recovery on the amount of the debts. You know, usually it's pennies on the dollar, maybe five or 10 cents on the dollar is what someone ends up paying back going through a bankruptcy. And a bankruptcy is everybody's legal right. You have the right to file for bankruptcy if you've got more debts than you're able to handle and you couldn't sell assets to pay those debts. So when the creditors consider that if someone can file for bankruptcy and they have to write off 90% of the debt or more, they're generally open to some options. They're open to offers. And that's exactly what a consumer proposal is. So a consumer proposal is an offer that's made to everybody that you owe money to, and it's for some amount of payment that's better than what would be recovered if you filed for bankruptcy, but that's less than the full amount of the debt plus the interest that they're charging you every month. So a good rule of thumb is normally a consumer proposal, you pay back a third to half of the debt over a period of up to five years. So if someone was owing, you know, let's say $40,000, which is a very typical amount of debt that we see these days, roughly a third of that is $13,000. So if someone came to us owing $40,000, we would help them file a consumer proposal that would have them pay back roughly $13,000. Over a five-year period, it's roughly $200 a month. So when people hear that, wow, I could owe $40,000 and I can deal with that debt for $200 a month, it sounds too good to be true. It's not. It happens every single day. It's what we do. Cool. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, the first, uh, first guy. Yeah, so, so we sat down, you know, both him and his wife came in and, and the two kids as well, and we sat in the office and we reviewed everything. You know, we looked at, they weren't, they didn't have any real estate. They were paying rent each month. We looked at their budget. There weren't a whole lot of extravagance there. It's just a case of, you know, family of four from a family of two, a lot of extra expenses. So we looked through a, a bankruptcy scenario, but, you know, for a bunch of reasons, he said, well, you know, there must be something else that, that's out there. And of course, we won, run through a consumer proposal. And what the consumer proposal was able to do was to reduce his debts by half of the total amount with zero interest and no additional fees. So that $2,100 a month plus interest, that went out the window. What he pays now in his proposal, you won't believe this, Elaine, from $2,100, $350. $350 a month. That's right. To pay off the debt, which is basically in half. It was 41,000. It's now be 20 something. Yeah, yeah, just over 20. And And how long will it take him to pay that? 
So at the minimum payments of three fifty, he's right. on a term of sixty months or five years. Okay. What most people do, and what he's trying to do now, we're only about six or eight months into this, um, is he's trying to double up on some payments. If he gets a three pay month, he's making an extra payment on the proposal. So the way the proposal works, and this is a great thing about proposals, is if you pay it off sooner, you actually rebuild your credit sooner. So okay. you have the right to run it to the full five years, and there's no interest and no fees, so you don't save money by paying it off sooner. But you do put it behind you. You put it behind you on your credit. You start to put more positive stories on your credit moving forward. So he's trying to pay the proposal off sooner, which is what most people try to do. And this is a guy, and I I think it's important to just remember, this was a guy who was married. They were expecting a child. They ended up with two. Mm -hmm. They weren't they didn't own real estate. They were renting. I mean, that fits the scenario of buckets and buckets of people, right? Where Mm -hmm. things happen that you don't expect and then you just naturally would accumulate that debt. I mean, just the cost of living alone, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, you always the right decision is to provide for the family, you know, to, yeah. to pay the rent, to pay the groceries. And, you know, for, for his situation, he just thought, okay, when wife gets back to work, we're going to be able to clear this sure. debt. Um, but when he started to see the 39 years, and they were struggling, 2100 bucks a month in, in payments, quite often what happens is, you know, that money doesn't come from salary. That money often comes from getting a cash advance from this card or getting a payday loan. It becomes this vicious cycle of just moving money around and there's never a happy ending all it does is deepen the problem right so $350 a month and uh, and plus they can can live right yeah. they're, they're eating they're doing all the things that they need to do yeah and one of the extra benefits of a proposal and this is beyond the financial um, is that you're required to come for two counseling sessions I've never had a client tell me they don't get value out of these counseling sessions it's all the great financial literacy stuff they should teach in school and they definitely didn't in my time hopefully they do now right. um, but it's about rebuilding your credit about household budgeting about life after the proposal how do you move forward so we're really trying to equip this gentleman and his family with the tools so that you know the idea is not that you do a proposal after proposal. The idea is that you've reached a very difficult debt situation, you turn things around, and then we give you the tools to move forward so that you don't have to face the situation again. Excellent. Okay. Let's go to the uh, the second proposal, or the second example, case mm-hmm. study. Uh, another guy, 30, 35-year-old, comes mm-hmm. in the door, and he's got skills. Yeah. He's got lots of skills and go ahead. What's his story? Yeah, so it's just just, you know, luck of the draw here with two male clients. The split's actually a little bit more female. It's about 53% okay. female for our client base, but in this case we've got two examples for for gentlemen. Um so yeah, this gentleman was a skilled tradesman, um 35 years old and his unfortunate situation was health issues. So through no fault of his own, he suddenly found himself very sick, went through, you know, a number of months of therapies, doctors trying to figure things out for him, and all through that time he couldn't work at his full capacity. So for his job, he wasn't getting paid when he wasn't, you know, able to show up, you know, skilled tradesman, when you're doing the work, piecework or whatever, you're making money. Without that, there's little to no social safety net, especially if you're self-employed. Exactly. Health benefits, all that stuff that we take advantage of when you work for a large company, you Mm -hmm. get, or most of us get, uh, but this case, that wasn't the situation at all. Yeah. So he had, you know, very little income coming in the door. He had therapies he had to pay for, prescription drugs, things like that. Um, By the time he finally sorted out his his health issues and was able to become, you know, go back to work and earn his full capacity, he had accumulated $55,000 of consumer debt. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. 
Yeah. And his big thing that threw him through, that pushed him through the door for us was, you know, he knew the number was big and he, he just thought, okay, I'll put my head down and I will work through this. But it was the calls. He said it was more than mm. 10 times a day, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. at night, people coming through the, the phone at him, making him feel, you know, like he's, you know, just the smallest type of person in, in the world, making him sound dishonest when, you know, he tried to do the best that he could every day of his life. And it was his health that really dropped out on him. And that'd be a bit scary as well. Mm-hmm. I would, I would feel very fearful if I had that kind of bombardment of, of calls coming at me. Yeah. And, and he, you know, through that fear, and this is usually, this is why the calls are so unpleasant is because they often work in that he was making minimum payments of that were more than half of his income. His income was $3,200 per month. He was paying $1,600 in minimum payments and struggling to live on, on the balance. So at 3200 you cut it in half and then you pay rent. There's very little left there at the end of the day. Absolutely. So he had done that for several months and then he came in to see us. Cool. So what were you able to come up with him? I mean, how did it all work out for this guy? Well, so in his situation, he's actually finished now. Uh, what we were able to do was to, we filed a consumer proposal and we took the debts from 55000 plus interest every day getting bigger. We reduced it by more than half down to 23400 Right off the bat, that's mm-hmm. where you started. That's what the creditors accepted. So we cool. made that offer. 45 days later, the creditors accepted, which is 95 to 99% of proposals they get accepted. So this isn't a pipe dream. It's almost every case they get through here. And the way he structured his proposal is he thought in his income, he can afford to make higher payments, so he paid six fifty a month over a three th- sorry over a thirty six month term. Wow, that's incredible. So where is he now in this uh, in this story? Well, so he's finished. I think it's about two years ago now. So it's starting to drop off of his credit report, which is excellent. So on Equifax and TransUnion, a proposal will clear two to three years after your last payment. So you know he eventually wanted to save money, you know, get a down payment, get real estate, so on and so forth. Um, so he really timed it. Let's pay off the proposal sooner. Let's start to rebuild the credit while we're saving the down payment. So his goal is ideally to get into the real estate market. Hopefully, when there's some price correction in a few years here. Cool. And in just in in, in wrapping it up, a little bit more about him. Him. Um, he got there through no fault of his own. How do you, is there a way that, um, in terms of the education that these folks get at uh, the counseling that they get, is there is there some things that we can all take away from this to, to be prepared for? Or how do we be prepared for something like that? Yeah, the, the number one thing, Elaine, we counsel this for everybody is, you know, to really plan for the unexpected. And, mm-hmm. and the way that you do that is you build up a cushion, you build up an emergency fund. Best practices are typically three to six months of your expenses. So anybody that has that, they're not resorting to credit because every time you go through credit, you know, 20% interest, it's going to double every three years. If you've got the savings to work out and, you know, really to give you a peace of mind that, hey, I'm living off savings, not on credit, that's your number one best way to try to avoid the situation. And I would think that if that seems like an enormous struggle, a huge challenge to do, then maybe it's time to really look at your expenses yep. and your debts and, and maybe sooner than later, check in with uh, check in with you. Exactly. Cool. For more information or if anything, any of uh, what we've talked about uh, sort of resonates with you, uh, listening to Dollars and Cents today, check uh, Blair Manton, Sands & Associates. The web- website's nice and easy, sands-trustee.com. Or you can call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation to find an office near you. Vancouver's News, Vancouver's Talk. This is News Talk 980 CKNW. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. 
Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.